Hello, and welcome to Good Film Hunting, the podcast for two sisters living in different parts of the country, talk with friends and family about some of our favorite movies. So I will hand it over to Eleanor to introduce our movie and guest. Alright, today we will be talking about the Disney animated film The Hunchback of Notre Dame with Brie DeSilvera, who is a friend of mine from Los Angeles. But Brie, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where are you from? What do you do? Your interests? (laughs) Alright, hi everybody. Um, I'm from San Diego, California. I work for Marvel Entertainment at the Walt Disney Company, so I'm a little biased here especially considering today's movie, but full disclaimer, these are my opinions, not the company's. Um, I feel like legal would want me to say that. (laughs) Um, Aside from that, I went to USC with Eleanor and I studied film there. And here in LA, I'm just working and playing around with my cat. Wonderful. So the movie that we're talking about today, you selected The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Um, and we'll jump into that. But first, Annie likes to play this game <laughs> called Speed Friending. I do. I do enjoy playing it. So, Brie, um, our first question for you is, what is your favorite morning beverage? It would definitely be a nice piping hot cup of tea. Um, my grandmother... <laughs> she used to make us tea all the time when we'd come over, but she's a smoker, so she tastes things very differently and would put a ton of sugar in it, um, not realizing that it would just make us kind of like bounce off their walls the rest <laughs> of the day. Um, so just whenever I need a nice little pick-me-up, especially in the morning, that's my go-to is a nice cup of tea with a lot of sugar and a bit of milk as well. Okay. Um, second. Who was your animated crush? <laughs> um, animated crush. I'd say growing up, it was probably Danny Phantom from that Nickelodeon show, which is kind of weird considering that he was a ghost. But <laughs> now I'd say Prince Naveen from The Princess and the Frog. Prince Naveen is not an answer we've had before. And I love that. I feel like he people does have forget. a good voice. Yeah, oh, people yeah. forget about him. And I'm like, he's so handsome. I mean, he's a little conceited at first, but, you know, ultimately Tiana whips him into shape and it's not such a bad guy. He shows more growth than almost any of them. That's awesome. Yes. So. <laughs> okay. And then our final question is okay. Eleanor, help me out before I ask it. So I just saw the Ruth Bader Ginsburg movie on the basis of sex, which I think the actress in it is Felicity Jones. Jones. Thanks, Mom. Mom came in so clutch. So our question for you is Felicity Jones or Felicity Huffman? I have to go with Jones because I don't know who Huffman is. I'm horrible with names and faces. So I'm, wait. I should Google this right now <laughs> and Felicity, find a picture. Felicity Huffman was, I think, most famous for being on Desperate Housewives. And then oh, she okay. was in Transamerica, which I think was, like, very important when it came out, but would probably be read as transphobic now. Hmm. Yeah, I'm going to go with Jones. You like Star Wars a lot, too, so it makes sense on multiple levels. I did just watch Rogue One the other day. Oh, I forgot that you I, 
Yeah, with Diego Luna, my boyfriend, if I could have one. Yes, definitely. Agreed. Also, again, I just saw this movie today, so it's like out my brain, but Army Hammer, what a dream boat. I mean, honestly, the whole time I was like, stop. (laughs) You're like, oh, yes. Well, that added to the fact that he's playing like the most lovable husband we've seen in any type of like film or in real life like ever i actually just read an article about how the studio wanted to make there be some sort of conflict with the character and add some sort of like scene where he's not understanding of ruth's like vision and i and I was like, what for? Like, you think she'd accept any sort of, like, less in a husband? Like, she has major standards. Like, no one, she would not marry someone that did not, like, agree with what she was doing. But that's Hollywood for you. Yeah, they wanted um, some problems there. But, like, honestly, he was, like, the biggest supporter of her career. So it's like, I don't think that they could have. They would have been making it up, like, honestly. Right. It would have been a very, very faux scene. Right. So let's jump into the discussion of our movie. Can you give us a brief synopsis of this movie? I'll try. There's a lot that happens in this movie. Um, So The Hunchback of Notre Dame came out in 1996, and it's Disney's adaptation of the Victor Hugo novel. And the... Orphan hunchback Quasimodo is taken in by Judge Frollo, who is the Parisian Minister of Justice. Um, Frollo is obsessed with removing gypsies from Paris, and it's so horrible he even forces Quasimodo to live isolated in Notre Dame as the bell ringer for the church. Quasimodo grows up there, doesn't really have any other interaction except with Frollo, and eventually escapes. He attends the Festival of Fools and runs into Esmeralda, a gypsy. Um, She shows him kindness when the Parisians mock Quasimodo's appearance, and unfortunately, Esmeralda becomes Frollo's next obsession, and Quasimodo must save her, Paris, and the rest of the gypsies from Frollo's clutches. That was a very beautiful synopsis of this movie. I felt like it encapsulated it all. There was like a little, okay, well, this is where we can bring this in. I I love the gargoyles um, in this movie. So can you tell us a little bit about what like the gargoyles do for this film? Like what what part do they play? Well, the novel is not very um, light and cheery and as a Disney movie this is supposed to appeal to a lot of different types of people especially families so they're kind of the comic relief um, and allow the audience to get into Quasimodo's head because it's much easier to do that in a book than it is a movie of course so they give Quasimodo a bit of encouragement a lot of people have kind of um, thought of them as other embodiments of Quasimodo's imagination kind of his own little pep squad if you will and they help him out in his journey. So from, from your description, um, Annie was able to tell us her favorite character. Do you have a favorite character in this? Because I would say one of the strengths and potential weaknesses of this movie is that, um, and it's a very complicated movie for children because it has a love triangle, and the hero 
doesn't get the girl. And that's really, that's rare. It is so rare. For a Disney film. Um, so, so there's, our emotions are tied to many people. Which character motivates you the most or were you the most interested in? Definitely growing up, it was Esmeralda. Um, she was this strong, kick-ass girl um, with really cool hair. I actually grew, uh, dressed up as Esmeralda for Halloween one year. There's a photo of me with the family dog with my little like tambourine and cute little outfit. Um, and I think even to this day, just kind of her strong willpower and her selflessness. She's very caring toward her people. She recognizes that there's a major political struggle going on. It's racially motivated. She's also someone that Frollo doesn't take seriously. He at first doesn't see her as a threat. The um, citizens don't want to listen to her and she's calling for justice. She's calling for peace and unity. And you know, with all of that is still a very kind person so i would definitely say esmeralda well it's almost as if she is a beacon of intersectionality before we really thought of that in terms of characters because in the she's voiced by demi moore um and this was kind of before disney was very aware of representation from voice talent but she plays a gypsy woman so that would be a marginalized group and a woman um and she clearly is not in a position of power and she is lusted over by multiple men um so when we think of her sticking up for them and then but she does retain what she pointed like this essential goodness definitely and being i mean i think i was about three years old when that movie came out um i don't know when i first watched it don't know why my parents let me watch it at such a young age but I think it was very formative into seeing you know this is someone who essentially has nothing but she still is caring about those around her and those that might be other and different and it's just it's kind of a it's a unique role model that unfortunately you don't see in a lot of movies today and when you think about the other movies that came out at the time You've got, this was, you know, in the middle of Disney's renaissance in the 90s, you've got The Lion King, you've got Beauty and the Beast, Little Mermaid, all the other women in those, you know, they're princesses and, you know, they want their man, they cry over things, which, you know, it necessarily isn't necessarily a bad thing, but it was a nice deviation from those type of archetypal women. So... I love this movie, and I love particularly one song within this movie, um, God Save the Helpless. I sang as, like, I think an audition piece from, like, high school, and I just, like, fell in love with the lyrics, because it really is such a beautiful, well, first of all, like, the melody is so beautiful, but the lyrics are so beautiful, the the message is so beautiful, um, and I was wondering if you have a favorite song from this film. I do have a favorite song from this film, um, but I just want to first say, like, all of the music in this is absolutely beautiful, and it really saddens me that, you know, the music now is not nearly as encompassing in a lot of these movies, Um, but I would definitely say there's some pretty close ones, but 
actually the opening number of the bells of Notre Dame was to me was just such a powerful opening sequence you hear the bells you see us fly over Paris the clouds kind of open up you go through the city and it's just a nice introduction to the space and it's a kind of dark introduction if you really listen to the lyrics um, it goes into the murder of Quasimodo's mother and kind of how the story all unfolds but just the impact that it had and really setting up the scene is amazing. Um, my second would definitely be Hellfire, um, which it's just such a different villain song. And I, I'm a sucker for villains. I love awesome Disney villains. So having one that gets their own song that's so powerful and, and so controversial as well is really awesome. Okay, but to this point, I'm glad that you brought up the villains, because villains historically are my favorite characters as well. But with this villain, he is almost pure evil, and he exists in the world in a way that others don't. Um, (laughs) And one of the concerns I have with that is Scar kind of had the same level of unadulterated hatred and you don't almost understand why that where this anger and where this where this is coming from but with this character he's a man um with lions like yes we can anthropomorphize them and we see ourselves and elements of ourselves in attitudes that they have and actions they take but this is a man like and for me this and i i'm older than both of you so when i saw this in theaters it was like overwhelming ugh It's definitely overwhelming, and because everything is so human and so real, I mean, heck, you see parallels all across history, even today, to politicians and, you know, just corrupt people who have these types of views, Um, and as a child, you know, you might think that, oh, wow, this is kind of over the head of a kid, but, you know, I grew up knowing that, you know, this was not okay, This, this was a very scary villain just because of how real and visible this actually was you know he didn't have magic <laughs> he wasn't yeah he wasn't an animal this was just a normal person with power who was corrupt i hadn't thought about that point actually of how the villain here is simply a dude with power um and i can't what is his is he the sheriff of like paris is he... he is the minister of justice Okay. So Did kind of the exist? law of the land. Do you guys know? I've heard it before. Um, I don't know if it still exists, but it's it was definitely a rule at a time. I mean, what a title to have, Minister of Justice. And it seems like he gets to define what justice is also. Like, it doesn't seem like he's going by any specific rule book, right? But, but that's... That's very much like a Victor Hugo quality in the villains, because we see that too in Les Mis. That is true. And I think it's him operating by his own rules also brings in the question of Phoebus, um, who's the third element in the love triangle, who is a soldier and one of the um, highest ranking guards in Frollo's army, essentially, um, who is questioning, you know, who are you answering? Who, who are you, um, where are you following? What are you following? And bringing kind of that moral ambiguity to that character who's done horrible things and later realizes that 
the person he's following, this man who's supposed to be this minister of justice, is doing things all in the wrong way, um, all in the name of justice, of course. I find it personally fascinating that you loved this movie so much um, because you, more than almost anyone I know, loves Disney and knows the Disney filmography so deeply. Do you do you think there's anything within this story itself? As we've talked about, it's darker than most. It's focused on justice. There's a certain seriousness to it. Um, is there something that appeals about it to you? other than kind of like you were like right age to get the full onslaught of the Disney mass marketing, which you more than most would be aware of what happens. Like you were the target age group. Um, but what about this movie has stuck with you beyond that? Cause you know, all of the movies. I would say that this movie has stuck with me just because of how adult it is. I mean, it's a movie with murder, lust, you know, views on politics, religion, racism, like this is stuff that they were showing, you know, five, six, seven year olds who didn't necessarily have the, um, the worldview to fully understand and grasp those concepts just yet. But I still love that they, you know, of course, it's a watered down version of the novel, but they still made it accessible and didn't slam messages over anyone's head it's still a very adult movie you know you watch it today and you're picking up on things that yeah you might not have picked up on as a kid and I know they were very surprised when the movie received its g rating um, because there is so much that goes on in there and so yeah for me it's just the fact that you know Disney took a huge risk with this movie especially considering what other movies were coming out at the time and adapted something that I think has a lot of really interesting themes that ne aren't necessarily all resolved at the end, um, but still allow kids to ask those questions that it's not just a fun song and dance kind of movie, even though it still has those classic Disney elements of a love story and some awesome music as well. I'm wondering if you guys, sorry, Eleanor, um, I'm wondering if you guys have any background info, because I don't know this, on how this movie got the green light. Because it, as you were kind of saying, like, it does have classical elements of, of this kind of Disney renaissance that we saw in the early 90s, but it is very different at the same time. It's not like Aladdin or Mulan or Pocahontas, all those movies I love, but it's still, <laughs> it's still got the green light. So is there like a story there? Was there someone who was like super passionate about the project? Who was like very in in Disney? Like, I don't know if that exists. I actually don't know the official story. Um, but from what I understand, it was just one of those instances where there were so many other movies also being made that it kind of flew under the radar a little bit, especially in terms of, there wasn't those executives being like, why is there so much violence? Why, you know, are we going to those themes? They realized it was going to be a hard novel. Um, and I honestly don't think that they had a lot of faith in the movie. Um, there was a lot of discussions about, you know, the lack of toys and even the lack of, if you go to the parks today, there's, there's hardly any merchandise. You know, people forget that this movie even exists. It kind of falls back into that 
the vault and you know hardly ever comes out again so it actually surprises me that it is online um, to be able to watch but I've known many people that have never even seen this movie um, who love Disney and I think it was one of those interesting projects where they wanted to do something different um, and unfortunately it didn't make a ton of money um, when it first released but I think looking back, you know, this will be one of those movies that will repeatedly come up as a favorite for a lot of people. Um, just also because of the source material, but because they took that risk. I think this was one of the first animated films after the Katzenberg era, like after he left Disney. And so that's why it does feel markedly different than like Lion King and Pocahontas in the early nineties ones. Um, but it's, it's interesting that you said that people will come up with this as a favorite, but in all of the conversations we've had, and in and Annie and I are fortunate in that we have a lot of conversations now with people about their favorite childhood films, this one is almost never brought up. Um, never brought up. And that's okay. But I also, have have they seen that, this movie again recently? That's That's something that I do wonder. Because I think growing up, I wouldn't have said the hunchback of Notre Dame. I definitely would have said the Lion King, which I, you know, I wore up the VHS tape watching, but, um, and this isn't necessarily like my absolute favorite, you know, childhood movie either. But I think to me, like looking back, I can rewatch this movie and enjoy it as an adult and see the kind of impact it made on my childhood. Um, without really me even realizing that it had made that impact and helped shape my worldview. So shaping your worldview, that's, okay, I want to circle back to that because (laughs) to me that this is an intense one to have shaped your worldview and like how, how do you think it shaped you as opposed to like your younger sisters? Because presumably if you watched this movie when you were little, um, they also did just (laughs) how families, at least back in the nineties would work. Now like each kid could watch their own thing almost without any type of shared sibling experience. Um, but what lessons did you take away? Or I know for me, one of the things that I think I didn't like about this movie as a kid, but to your point that I can appreciate now is Quasimodo doesn't get everything he wants. And um, in part because, like, I was listening and reading about this idea of, like, self-obsession. And in the West, it's... And we hear all the complaints about people our age, about millennials, about how we always get... We're shocked when we don't get what we want because we were raised on stories where everything comes true. Um, So... And so that's why now I see the value of this film in a way I wouldn't have before. But what what do you think or how does that relate to your experience of watching it? Well, I grew up Catholic. <laughs> and so there's a lot of obviously religious undertones with Quasimodo being in Notre Dame. And although this does use a lot of religion, I think it the broader themes of doing wrong in the name of right doesn't make it right. Um, as a kid, you know, it was kind of just very much like, oh, things are black and white. Things are either right or they're wrong. But you, this movie kind of opened my eyes to the idea that there is this gray area. You know, even even the villain has weaknesses. You see, you hear it in the Hellfire song. He has flaws. He has 
all these other elements to him. And so do the main heroes. Um, Quasimodo, you know, has some instances aside from the obvious, like he hasn't had much social interaction, but you know, where he's rude and selfish and he gets jealous over Esmeralda and Phoebus's love. And there, he's supposed to be our hero. Um, and you can see this with a number of different characters as well. But I guess for me, it's just, yeah, kind of breaking out of that fairy tale mold, definitely, um, to see that the world is way more complicated. And it forced me to think, honestly, and to think about the world in different ways and not take everything necessarily at face value and to be very curious as to why things were the way things are and to always have a, another question as in behind motivations and the characters that were being presented, whether it's by Disney or any of the other films that I had watched at the time. Yeah, I think that that's a really good point. And I also think it's probably one of the reasons that this movie was not as successful as some of the other Disney ones is it's tough. It's a tough movie to watch. And it's, and, and something like that, even the song, like God, um, help the the hopeless i said it before. help the outcasts yeah god help the outcasts there we go um even that song is like kind of as a child it was like a call to arms to like go out and like interact with people who were different than me and and you know kids on like even kids being bullied on a playground like all of those people are outcasts and unfortunately we don't really force our kids or or through film we don't usually have kids faced with that you know like I can't think of a movie right now or a television show that like so radically forces kids to think about who is an outcast and like how do I treat other people definitely and it's it's a nice combination of conversation as well as entertainment um versus just pure entertainment for the sake of entertainment and yeah, unfortunately, it's just it was a, a hard sell at the box office, and but I think, and I hope that more films along that vein will be made in the sense of getting the conversation started and actually having some really challenging kids movies. Okay, I want to talk about one thing that I think kind of encompasses both the marketing failures or marketing obstacles and then the re part of the reason why people don't remember this as a movie they particularly like and I think it's because of this love triangle and we don't have an idealized male figure and I think that's important I think it's like a complicates thing but Phoebus and Kevin like Kevin Klein as Phoebus I specifically remember thinking he didn't have as an attractive voice as Mel Gibson and Pocahontas and like Mel Gibson all of the problems he has like he's a very attractive voice he was very attractive as the voice of John Smith um Kevin Klein like doesn't have that type of gravitas and I think this was the movie with people that immediately followed Pocahontas so I think that was a stopping point and also we weren't supposed to like like Phoebus um and it almost has elements of, like, a Cyrano de Bergerac story, which is, like, my favorite st- type of story, um, other than the 
bad movie that came out on Netflix um, this fall, but, um, what was this? Sorry, train of thought. <laughs> um, but we, actually, Annie, you always have thoughts about love, so while I recompose myself, what are your thoughts on the male leads? Um... Okay, so my thoughts on the male leads and the love stories. I have thoughts. I have lots of thoughts. Um, because honestly, as a child, if I was someone who like loved love, I did feel kind of cheated that Quasimodo doesn't get his own love story. Like, I'm cool with Esmeralda like finding her love because obviously he's like a nice dude, and I get that. But it also the movie seemed to say to me if you're like so deformed that someone calls you hunchback love does not exist for you you know um some there will always be a beautiful blonde-haired blue-eyed guy who comes up and steals the girl away from you um even the girl who's the, you know being nice to you so i don't know i just like i wish that he and i, I think that there was a hunchback of notre dame too and i don't know if that was like a major plot of that movie but i would have liked to see him get some some love in there too it actually was the main plot of the second movie. He falls in love with a blonde, blue-eyed girl. <laughs> so he does get his love story. But I think for me, I don't know, maybe just because I wasn't so infatuated as a kid with that like princess love story, fairy tale um, storyline. But for me, I think, and looking back, it's so important to have... I guess Esmeralda having her own agency to kind of, you know, choose whoever she wants, of course. And it always kind of, again, back to the challenging yourself while watching this movie. It's like, why do I feel that, like, the hero of the story shouldn't have have the girl or should have the girl? Or what? why do I feel this type of way about this love triangle? Like, what kind of elements were placed to make me feel one, one way toward these characters? Um and I think the change that they made at the end of the movie is very different from the book, but the main and most impactful element is that when Quasimodo actually steps out of Notre Dame into Paris and has the city kind of see him truly for the first time, it's a child that comes up to grab his hand and bring him into the city with the rest of the people. It's a different kind of love. It's still a love, but it's a, it's a, it's a you know, it's a non-romantic love essentially, but it's a love, it's a human, a human love, just a love for humanity. And especially with dealing with the um, disfigurement that he suffered as a child and deals with today with the people of Paris, you know, it's very, it's important. And as a child seeing, you know, like, Hey, I can make a difference. I could, I could have been that kid to go up and bring him out and introduce him to people. It's kind of a cool empowerment for a kid's movie. Yeah. I hadn't thought of this connection before, but honestly, based on what you just said, have you read the young adult book or seen the movie wonder? Yes. I've heard of it. Um, it, came out pretty recently um it had jacob tremboy from room yes mm -hmm. and julia robertson yes. and owen wilson as the parents but one of the things from both the book and the movie and you touched on this was 
the idea that this kid who has a deformed face, who is marginalized and is made to feel like an outcast, he loves Halloween so much because he can hide or he can, no one sees him as different. And that's like one of the things that Quasimodo, there's that like really powerful scene where he feels part of a community when people think he's, thinks he's kind of wearing a costume and it's not till they realize like that's what he looks like and then it's almost like doubly devastating for him I just that is a scene that like will always stick with me and like him covered with the uh, like fruits that are thrown <laughs> thrown on him um but I th I think I know we've talked a lot about how this movie might not be appealing to kids but kids also do have this strong sense of justice and fairness um so, yeah, it's almost like, it is almost like there is too much in this movie. Like, I almost could go without the Phoebus and Esmeralda, like, love thing entirely, and I don't think the movie would be lacking. No, and I feel like they definitely threw that in there to satisfy people who needed just a sort of, like, all right, we need a kiss, we need a little love story to root for, um... I mean, because also their relationship happens very quickly, <laughs> as most Disney relationships do. Um, but I think at the end of the day, Quasimodo got, you know, some of the love that he definitely deserved. And it, it does suck that <laughs> Quasi didn't have, you know, it took a second movie for him to have a love interest that... But I like the fact that they did not make Phoebus feel like some something that Quasi wasn't. It was just that Esmeralda fell for a different guy. It wasn't that, oh, Quasimodo's deformities or, you know, something about the way he looked was like off-putting to Esmeralda or the reason why he didn't get the girl. It's just that at the end of the day, she fell in love with someone else. And that's also an important message as well. Do you have a particular favorite scene from this? Okay, I don't know why, but the scene where Esmeralda is first introduced, and I guess I actually do know why, but for a Disney movie, this is a very provocative. It's a sexy little like number. She does some cool magic. She's toying with Frollo wrapping her scarf around him. She's putting on a show. You know, she's introduced. She winks. She's wearing a crown. She's, you know, it's like a bombshell opening of, a, of an introduction. Um, and I think here I just liked the fact that she had, despite all of this cool grace, she had this cheekiness about her. She steals a, um, a spear from one of the guards and uses it to dance around and, so you see that she's very much owning her sensuality and using it to her advantage. And she later uses that same thing to escape um, when Frollo arrives. And I don't know why it seems to be my favorite moment, but that was just a fun, cool introduction to a really strong kick-ass character. Yeah, I feel like this movie is called like The Hunchback of Notre Dame and like, Quasimodo is technically, like, our titular character and main character. But I would say that, like, Esmeralda is the real, like, driving force of the film. Um, like, it's about Quasimodo, but it's also not. 
which is kind of She's cool. definitely not a passive character. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. All the love. And overall, the movie is just very beautiful. It was one of their first experiments with using CGI. Um, a lot of the crowd scenes, those characters were created using computers and the early tech at the time um, to make those huge crowds. And the colors are beautiful, especially with all the stained glass windows. If you go back in and see all the detail that was put into creating Notre Dame and all of the backdrops, I mean... You could admire any of the scenes, really, for just the level of artwork. In many ways, it's as if the the cathedral itself is so gorgeous, and then to have it replicated in animated form um, is pretty outstanding. And like particularly like the windows and the use of light that comes in through the windows and with the bell tower and like the understanding of the passage of time like that you have a you have a real sense of the artistry that goes into animation based on this film definitely I've always said in my other life I want to be an animator and it's because of movies like this where you see you know the real craftsmanship and the details they flew to Paris they went and you know took a lot of pictures and studied you know what would have been Paris in this time and I think it's a cool little snapshot a cool little history, you know, to jump into as a kid. It's a cool, a different place to see that's not a fantasy land. So along those lines, have you seen um, Rugrats in Paris? I have seen Rugrats in Paris. Okay. In terms of Parisian animation, which one do you think is better? Because I feel like you are actually into like the art of it, which I love. And so I mean, I love Rugrats in Paris. It's like one of my faves. But like, which one? Also, there is, um, they go to the, the cathedral there too. So from your memory, which one is the more beautiful? I do like the Rugrats animation style. It is very fun, and I do have fond memories of that movie. Um, I'm just going to say The Hunchback one for sure, just because of color and the use of, again, the lighting, the way they use the stained glass windows. But I can definitely appreciate the one in Rugrats. Okay. I mean, I just had to ask. As we were like talking about this, I was like, there's another movie where it's also super important. Um, and then another question I have for you is, I think that, that, you know, this movie was kind of, I don't know, off the beaten path for Disney. If you were to be an animator one day for Disney, what's like one story that you really want to tell, like are really compelled to tell? Oh, that's a toughie. We only ask the really hard-hitting questions here on Good oh, Film Hunting. really hard-hitting <laughs> questions, of course. Um, I'd say something that takes us back to, like, a time with, like, the Incas, Aztecs, or the Mayas. Did you guys ever see The Road to El Dorado? Yes, isn't that's another Kevin Klein animated film? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's a trend. Um, so, part of what I love about that movie is again the attention to detail and the research that they did, um, and just kind of the world building that was done and what it must have taken the animators to create that world. Um, 
And so I'd say something really cool with all that intricate architecture um, and just beautiful wildlife everywhere. So hopefully some cool characters or something rooted in that. Love. Really into it. I can't wait to see your movie one day. 2028. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'll be waiting. Um, okay. So before we wrap up and start talking about our favorite pop culture things of the week, I think that we've all kind of hit on it, but um, we do like to think about where, what purpose this movie serves now, kind of in like the larger you know, picture of, of children's media. Um, so yeah. Do you think it's like worth watching? Like in what way should kids be watching it, consuming it, all those fun things? I think that this is definitely a movie that kids could totally watch. I know age appropriateness is definitely a question considering some of the themes. Um, but I think, having a kid watch this, you know, who's old enough to understand a little bit of what is going on could be beneficial to conversations in terms of what's going on in our world. You know, we have, unfortunately, you know, a lot of conflicts happening right now, whether, you know, it's refugees trying to come over, whether it's, you know, violence in our streets, whether it's the inequality of um, women right now and how, you know, their struggles and how they're leading all these uh, reforms and marches. And we're, we're at a very interesting time where like this movie, all of these different issues are intersecting. And there's, as we saw in Paris, Paris was literally burning because of all of the tension. So much was going on. Um, and right now for me, it feels like, you know, sometimes the world is burning. There's so much going on, you know, there's a lot of issues and for a child, I can't imagine that that would be any easier to understand. So hopefully a movie like this could help break down and start those conversations as to, you know, why things are the way they are in a Disney-fied way. Um, and hopefully have the effect that it had on me in which I was able to view the world in a different light and make ask questions about what were otherwise seemed as very adult things and be heard and understood. That was really beautiful about the value of this film. Um, for me, like on a, just a much smaller scale, I think one of the values I didn't ascribe to this film until our conversation was the fact that it is a character it features a character who does not get everything his heart desires but still leads a full life and I don't think we have enough characters like that and like that is a reason I would promote this film. I completely agree with that and I think especially with you know the obsession of having you know a six-figure salary a huge house perfect spouse, perfect family, you know, it's, it's a great testament to the ways in which life can be fulfilling without having to be conforming to someone's idea of what makes a fulfilling and happy life. Hmm. That's so beautiful. Um, I definitely think kids should be watching this movie. What I love about this film is it really kind of drives, drives home the, the idea of empathy and how to be empathetic and and part of what I think this movie does so well is it shows that part of being empathetic is 
meeting people. Like, I feel like in this movie, you have people from different segments of society all of a sudden being kind of, like, forced to interact. And that's when they're kind of confronted with how different they are, but also, again, like, how they're the same. Um, and I think that that's really valuable for kids because in... It, in at least the U.S. today, I feel like we have these different segments of society that never, ever interact, and that's really sad. Like, even just across political divide, like divides or, or racial divides or socioeconomic divides, like, there are so many divisions that it's like, we all need to come together now. It is a huge me- message of that movie. I mean, Frollo tells Quasimodo that, you know, the gypsies are horrible people and they don't deserve to be here, and, you know, through meeting Esmeralda and the rest of her people, he finds that, you know, he shouldn't necessarily believe everything that others tell him. So totally. Okay. So as we wrap up this discussion, which has been so lovely, um, we always talk about our favorite pop culture thing of the week or of the moment. Um, so if someone wants to go first, has anyone seen the movie bird box? On Netflix? No, but Netflix released for the first time ever that it's like a huge hit. Like they confirmed it, 40, whatever that means. 45 million accounts apparently watched it. 45 million um, in seven days. Like it was a week. Yeah. So I we watched it around the holidays and I had to explain to my mom multiple times that this movie did not come out in the theaters. She was very <laughs> confused as to like why she never heard of this new Sandra Bullock movie. Um <laughs> But we watched it as a family. It was a lot of fun, kind of just getting the cool jump scares. And it was a cool, interesting sci-fi moment. But I think my favorite aspect was just everyone's reactions to it online. All of the memes of the uh, covered eyes. They turned Sandra Bullock into like a ninja turtle at some point. Um, One of my other favorite ones is she was what they cropped her so she was walking by with the blindfold near uh, one of those like Salvation Army Santas asking for like change so she's walking by like pretending not to see them (laughs) there's just all these fun little uh, reactions to this movie and it was a cool like pop culture moment and I think they got the reaction that they were looking for by releasing it in this platform oh now I feel the need to watch it it is I hadn't it is a little jump scary so just Maybe with the lights on, but it's fun. Okay, mine is not really new right now, um, but I've gotten re-into it. I'm re... Well, I'm not even re-watching. I used to be into Game of Thrones. I, like, binged the first three seasons, and then I got bored and I stopped. And I am, as of today, back enthralled with it. It took a long time. I, like, essentially skipped season four, like, as I was watching episodes, and I was like, this is boring. I'm bored. I don't want to watch this. And so I just skipped to season five and now I'm really into it. <laughs> I know. That's another thing I need to watch. I'm getting overwhelmed. Persistence. Persistence. But my pop culture reference of the week, it, I am like truly obsessed. I know when I, I know when I get obsessed with something and it will be the only thing I think about or talk about. And Earlier today, one of my good friends from childhood and high school and everything sent me this in the information about a new British musical called Six the Musical, and it is about 
um, Henry the sixth, Henry the eighth, six wives. So the ones that, like divorced, beheaded, died, divorced, beheaded, survived. So it is a eighty-minute pop musical about that like forms them as a girl group and then it they like sing a la like pop songs and Beyonce like they definitely reference formation in one of the songs like it is incredible and like this is how I know I've already become obsessed with it because I found out about this maybe like at, around lunchtime so like five six hours before this recording and like I already know Oh, like the people who made it were are twenty four years old, and they did it like while they were bored, like at university, like. And I'm like, how do I know this already? Like, it's unnecessary, but I highly recommend it. I definitely want to see that. Oh my gosh, I will send you the soundtrack immediately. Immediately, it's so much fun, and the soundtrack's like forty two minutes. You can like get the full thing in just a little bit, and the songs are songs that you would listen to anyway like particular they're the type of like dance dance party party like beat songs if that makes any sense okay well thank you so so much this has been so lovely it's so great to talk about a movie that truly is just like a light in children's media <laughs> so Brie thank you so so much um thank you our loyal fans you can find us on Instagram Facebook please email us you can listen to us wherever please subscribe 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 um tell a friend and we love hearing from our listeners, and we have had had people reach out, and then we've interviewed them about their favorite childhood films. So if you feel a strong calling, let us know. So thank you again to our guest, Bree DeSilvera, today. Um, and thank you to our producer, Haley Beaupre. Bree, if you have um, anything coming up or coming out, or if you wanted to plug anything, please let us know. This is, this would be your space. I just had some really awesome bread from Homeboy Industries Bakery. If you don't know what Homeboy Industries is, you should definitely look it up. Um, they are an organization that helps formerly incarcerated people get back on their feet, find jobs, get everything in order so that they can go back to living awesome lives and they're a really cool organization and they make awesome bread so go check them out look at you incorporating the outcasts in every element of your life esmeralda would be proud (laughs) i think she would so thank you again and find a find good film hunting wherever quality podcasts are found except spotify one day all right thank you again